This is John Williams reaching out to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you are you there? Good day to you, my dear citizen. I uh, did not connect with you last week, and I'm sorry for that. You were traveling again, weren't you? I was down in Norfolk, Virginia, where actually I returned to the United States from France in 1789 with my two daughters, Martha and Maria. And when we arrived at the port, uh, there was a letter waiting from me from the new president of the United States, George Washington, telling me that he had nominated me to be his secretary of state and the Senate had confirmed the nomination. So without ever asking me, he made me the first secretary of state. Well, you could always say, hey, I didn't vote for you. You <laughs> didn't. True. You did not vote for him because you that were is, in France. But it is impossible, really, to say no to George Washington. We we hauled him out of retirement to preside over the Constitutional Convention. He did not wish to do that. And then, of course, we made him the first president of the United States, and he did not wish that either. When he had resigned his commission after the war, uh, one of the most extraordinary events in human history, that the successful commander of a revolution resigned his commission and returned to his private life. Uh, When he did that, he expected never again to be in the public arena. So when we drafted him, first for the Constitutional Convention and then for the first presidency, he felt that his historical reputation might suffer and that people might think of him as a man of ambition because he had not been able to enforce his desire for a quiet rural retirement. It's kind of the opposite these days. What's the point of being a revolutionary if you then don't get to govern the people and enjoy the spoils, you know? We knew some things that I think you've all forgotten. We had been reading our Plutarch. Plutarch was a Greek writing about the history of leadership in the Greek and Roman world, and he made parallel lives between people like Cicero and Solon and Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. And one of his short biographies was about a man named Cincinnatus who saved Rome on the battlefield, but then immediately went back to his his small farm and took up his plow and retired to private life. And we all had studied these worthies, these great heroes of the ancient world, and we tried to shape our own leadership styles in the shadow of those those great men who existed in the democracy of Athens or the Republic of Ancient Rome. So we had a different attitude towards power, I think, than uh, the ambitious yeah. political figures of your time. Well, speaking, though, of men of ambition, excuse me, um, um, I got bad news for you on the Hamilton front. How's that? Well, he's on our $10 bill, and they, the Treasury said that they were going to take him off the $10 bill and that we would put somebody else on there, and there's been sort of this national debate about who that person should be. But because of the success of the Broadway hit Hamilton, have you seen that show yet, Thomas Jefferson? I have not, but but I have heard about it. It's a really good show, singing and dancing and real good storytelling. It makes you want to be an American. It makes you want to be in the game, in the room, as they say. Anyway, it's a hit. And people love so ha- Hamilton so much now that they're saying maybe we should take Jackson off the 20 or or not, but we might just go ahead and keep Hamilton on the 10. The timing is is good to keep him there now. I hope you're not spending much of your national time on questions of this triviality. 
I'm not in favor of paper currency in the first place, but if anyone belongs on currency, it's Colonel Hamilton. He's the father of the American economic system. He's he's the creator of the national debt. He's the father of centralized federal <laughs> banking well. in the United States. He, there's one and only one person who must be on one of your coins, and that is Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, but you say that despite him. I, I We do it to honor these people. I mean, you're on our currency, too, you know. I'm the $2 bill and the nickel. I suppose I should see that as humiliating. (laughs) I think another way to look at it would be um, George Washington is only on one uh, of our – let's see. What's George Washington on? He's on the uh, $1 bill, right? And is he on any coins? He's on the quarter, right? Yeah. So I was going to say two ain't bad. You know, I mean, we've – Ronald Reagan is uh, on a quarter, but that – and I think he – let's see. What was Reagan on? Did we put Reagan on the half-dollar – no. I think they come and go in your time. I know there's not much permanency in the way you stamp your coinage. Uh, you know, I'm not really much concerned about this, but I will say this. I don't mean to be uh, sarcastic about Colonel Hamilton. If you have a fiscal system and you want to imprint the face of any single individual on it, yeah. the person who is most responsible for that fiscal system is none other than Mr. Hamilton. I hope you won't depict him dancing or jiving or whatever he's now doing on Broadway, but rather as the hero of Yorktown, which he was, or as maybe uh, the most important Secretary of the Treasury in American history because the Constitution is somewhat silent on just how the apparatus of government is to be set up. And it was Hamilton who created the the very fiscal infrastructure yeah, that has made America prosperous. Speaking of things the Constitution is silent on, we are getting a civics lesson this year and last on how we elect a president. Turns out the primaries and the caucuses are very important, the nominating of the candidates for the parties. This year seems to be trumping, if you will, the general election itself. I don't want to talk a lot about Donald Trump. I just wonder what advice do you have for us on the selection process. What's good about it? What's bad about it? Can you just give us some fodder for thought about the best way to select a president? Well, I can I can provide maybe some some preliminary thoughts. There was no selection process really in place in my era. There were no conventions, no caucuses, no primaries, no no uh, no fixed nominating process. It was really thought of as a, a sort of a cross between a popularity contest and the most um, respected American contest. And so the, the person who received the largest number of electoral votes would be president, and the person who received the second largest number would inevitably be the vice president. And So this was a very imperfect system. And over time, over several hundred years, it's evolved into the system that you now have of some caucuses, a number of primary elections in individual states, then the popular vote in November, and then the Electoral College essentially rubber stamping whatever the popular vote um, has tended to be, with some exceptions. That system was thought to be a very good system, but now in, in this election, in 2016, it appears to be highly imperfect because it is not distilling the worthiest Americans with the strongest sense of the Commonwealth and the deepest commitment to a sort of uh, servant leadership it's allowed uh, a demagogue, uh, in, in many people's minds a buffoon, a person who is more reactive than thoughtful, to appear to be the nominee of one of the two great 21st century political parties. And so now people are beginning to wring their hands because 
the illusion that this will always produce worthy candidates has been shattered by the the oddness of of, of this year's quadrennial election. Well, so, it's odd, but would, you you told us in a previous podcast though that we should respect that. If that's the will of the people, so be it, right? That's the set of processes that you have established over time. Uh, it's been worked out over decades, even over uh, several hundred years. And so you would think that, first of all, that system would be more efficient than it is. But secondly, as long as these are the rules of nomination, I think you know, you ought to abide by them to deny the most popular candidate of a certain party the nomination because you happen not to think he's worthy. Um, but when the people have overwhelmingly supported him, would seem to be about as anti-democratic an impulse as you could possibly have. I think it would be shattering to the very idea of self-government. But I do have suggestions for a better system. Okay. What if you had a series of candidates, uh, who maybe 20 or 25, and they were whittled down through this process to seven or 10, uh, so that each one of them was regarded as someone worthy to be the president of the United States, and at that point, you threw dice or, or brought in some <laughs> some random element. You see what this would do? It would take, it would it would make it less likely for any single individual ever to be able to count on being president, and it would eliminate the money factor almost immediately because even the very wealthy would have a hard time supporting. Okay, seven so. Say we have so you say we have seven, irrespective of party. Would there be Democrats and Republicans in this seven? There could be. I mean, you could have two parties, and each one could have its own system. But the idea that that one person and one person only is worthy to be the president of the United States is nonsense. In a in a society of six million, in my time, I could think of twenty or thirty people who could as well have been president in eighteen hundred as I was, and in your era. When you have 330 million people, that is a third of a billion people, it's impossible not to conceive that there are hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of right. people who could equally well perform as the president. And yet, for all of that, for a third of a billion people, you're nominating in one party someone whose behavior is so erratic that even people who admire him cringe at some of the things that come out of his mouth. Well, think of what that would do to campaign financing. It would be kind of irrelevant then, wouldn't it? Because Solves that problem, doesn't it? There's no point spending all that money because it's going to be the roll of the dice. So there's, in this case, it would have been uh, Trump, Cruz, Rubio, Kasich, Carson, and Jeb Bush. Um, then if you go back a little bit further, uh, maybe Fiorina, I think, was uh, maybe the next the, one. The governor of Texas was involved, the governor of Wisconsin. You, know, you had about 20 people in the beginning. Okay, but I mean, but we okay, but you know, that group got thinned, and so then we're down to maybe the ones that I described. But anyway, then maybe on a national stage, there on CNN or Fox, they'd throw the dice, and whoever wins this dice game, this random thing, they then become the party's candidate. And the idea is that any one of them is as good as another, right? Yes, and, and and it's a Greek principle. The reason I'm I'm quoting it, it really comes from ancient Athens. They had a system called ostracism. I don't know if you know much about that, but every year, the electors, the the white ma- males, the non-slave males of the, of Athens, would gather in the agora in the forum, and they would take little pieces of pottery, uh, and they would write on that pottery the person they most wanted to banish. 
And so let's say it was John Williams. Let's yeah, say sure. that out of the 26,000 people, you got the majority. Then they would come to you and say, John, we mean no disrespect, uh, but we're banishing you for 10 years. Wow. This, you could do this with this Trump. You could say, look, you've, you've raised some very interesting questions. You've stirred some passions. You obviously have tapped into some important concerns and frustrations that the American people have. But we choose to banish you because we think you're dangerous. So thanks for what you've done. We hope you make a lot of money in Europe or wherever you happen to go. And in 10 years from now, if you still have this ambition, you'll probably be more mellow and you will have thought about this in absentia and you can try again. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was reading a book the other day about other voting and election systems, and it seems so obvious, well, everybody votes and whoever gets the most votes wins. But that's but what, what can happen is you'll have uh, somebody could win with 35% of the vote, you know, and somebody else gets 34 and somebody else gets 33. And what that means is Mr. 35% wins, but you also have just now elected somebody that 65% of the people passed on. And a reverse system is interesting where you say, okay, say just of the Republican candidates or the Democrats for that matter, but there's more of them to think about. Who is the first person you want to throw out? And then you eliminate those candidates who are most unpopular with the most people. Donald Trump wins in either way, in either case, doesn't he? He would be the most popular among 40 percent. He's their nominee. But if you said, who is the one candidate that you want to dismiss today, Trump would win that as well, and he would be the first tossed out. And the largest by ostracism. And the largest percentage of the people would say, "Hooray, we got what we wanted." It's 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 kind of logical. It's not the way we do things here. That that ain't going to fly, President Jefferson. But that's kind of an interesting well, thought. Look at it this way: um, you have 330 million people, so some percentage of them are actually voting citizens, and if you could really, using your computers and all of the technologies of your time, determine how many people really, when they um, sleep on it and think it through, would be willing to have this Trump as the president of the United States, yeah. I'm guessing that it's a very small number compared to the the whole body of voters in, in the American system. But you've created, through your media and through the way you stage your primary system and so on, you've created the illusion of much greater centrality for these figures than they actually have. And it distorts the thinking process of the American people. If you could put this in some sort of perspective for the entire population and say, Trump's support really, say, comes to 6,500,000 people, or Bernie Sanders' support really comes to 13 million people, then you would sleep better at night. But you've created a system which really hypes for media rather than for civics, the way you go about your um, caucus and primary system. So I think you need to step back and realize that in this age of 24-hour, 365-day-per-year media, that you probably need to refigure your nominating processes. I'm going to let you go. Maybe on our next podcast we'll also talk about this point, and that is that the thing that also bothers me, maybe even more than anything we've talked about right now, is that the nomination process includes superdelegates, irrespective of the votes of the people, where they just say the party elite in Minnesota, in Illinois, in Indiana, they get their, their delegates automatically, and they get to vote for whoever they want automatically. It doesn't even matter what the people vote on that. 
which is one so of the reasons. For one man, one vote. Totally. It's one of the reasons Hillary Clinton keeps picking up delegates even at times when Bernie Sanders beats her. So I, I don't love that system either, but that's. That's nothing you guys ever talked about. That's not in the Constitution, for crying out loud. Of course not. Most of what you do is not in the Constitution. <laughs> Let me just close with this thought, sir, that right. uh, and it's the way I began. I returned from France, where for five years I served as the minister to the court of Louis the Sixteenth and was observing the French Revolution. I come back to deposit my daughters in Virginia and take care of some pressing financial concerns on a leave of absence. I arrive at the shoreline. I've been out of contact for years, really. And there I find out that I've been made the first secretary of state. That's the way this should be. There should be reluctant candidates who are drawn by the citizen body to perform public tasks. And the ambition, which is characteristic of all of your candidates, but in none more measured than this Trump, this kind of naked ambition. I, I want to be president. I'm not sure what I will do with it when I'm there, but I want this office. That's the death of a republic, and you must find a way to uh, discourage yeah. this form of, of demagogic, naked ambition. When you do that, you may have a chance to recover. Well, that's why I need to be king, and I know you agree with me on that one. If I was king— well, I, I would rather have a patriot king like you than a buffoon demagogue like him. Well, on that, sir, we're going to wrap up this podcast. Mr. Jefferson, thank you for visiting with us again, and let's have another conversation like this again next week. We shall. It's planting season at Monticello, and so I will see you on the other side of that. 